You cannot succeed alone. But you wouldn't know that from most of the information out there that falls into the category of self-help or personal growth. And it's somewhat of a paradox to grow, to thrive, to expand your life into new areas. All that requires personal ownership over your life. But it's also true that growth alone involves using the resources of others. We simply don't have everything we need in and of ourselves to succeed. So how do you get help from others to thrive? Well, in our podcast today, we're going to be outlining specific steps about how to start living interdependently. And by following the simple steps we'll talk about today, you can take your first steps toward joining a new revolution. Hi, my name is Will Sampson, and I am a social scientist who guides executives and companies to new levels of growth. If you want to improve your life all by yourself, well, that's your business. But if you want help from others, that's our business. And that's what this podcast is all about, helping each other succeed. We do that by inviting people into a growing revolution of interdependence. Just this week, Harvard Business Review published some new data about what has become this massive problem in our world called the Great Resignation. They suggested that we should think about this problem actually as the great disconnection. Now, if you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about, pick up any newspaper, any business magazine, any journal. We're living in this time when a huge percentage of workers have decided they no longer want what one writer referred to as bullshit jobs. <laughs> the research found that 65% of workers say they feel less connected to their coworkers than they have in the past. And a lack of connection drives significant turnover in the workforce. That article suggested that lonely employees are costing U.S. companies $405 billion a year. Now, of course, there are all kinds of other problems associated with that as well, including a lack of productivity, missed workdays, and just a general problem with the quality of work. There was another article recently published in Business Insider that said the Great Resignation, as present and problematic as it is, is hiding an even bigger issue, which is a hidden resignation of just burned out employees. Folks are at work, but they, they're barely showing up in terms of productivity, in terms of caring about their jobs. And this is true even for workers at the higher levels of scale in terms of management, complexity of work, salary. That Business Insider article started by highlighting a person who had recently turned down a raise of $100,000 a year because it wasn't worth it in terms of the quality of life. And you know, a problem has reached a point in our culture when the film industry is starting to make satirical films about that issue. So there's a new series that's about to be released, and it's called Severance. It stars Adam Scott from Parks and Rec. I love, I love Adam Scott. <laughs> In this series, he leads a team of office workers, and they've had their memories surgically divided between their work and personal life. That's how bad our workplace culture has become, that a Hollywood studio created a series about, about people whose work life is so horrible and so disconnected that they're willing to go through brain surgery not to think about work when they're not there. 
Now, this podcast isn't about workplace issues or organizational development, and I only offer those statistics because they provide a more understandable lens into the growing problem that is plaguing our world. The problem for so many of us is that this sense of disconnection runs far deeper than what we do with our workday. Our disconnection is often easy to see in our work and economic lives. I was just watching a piece on CBS Sunday Morning about the gross economic inequality that exists in our world. We have more billionaires in the world than ever before, and many of those billionaires saw, saw their wealth increase tremendously over the last two years of the global pandemic. At the same time, there's an overwhelming majority of the world's income earners who saw their wa wages stagnate or just decrease in real dollars during the pandemic. And this need for a revolution of interdependence is so much deeper than the story any statistic can tell. It's in the cultural zeitgeist. So many of the great preachers of personal empowerment, even they are increasingly talking more and more about self-transcendence. Whole companies like Tom's and Bombas, they've been built around the principle of using your purchasing power for the good of someone else. And even some larger corporate giants, companies like Salesforce.com, are embracing this idea of corporate social responsibility and interdependence. But what I'm talking about here is so much deeper than a Google trend or a corporate strategy or even the words of a few influencers. What I'm trying to tap into is a true and deeply felt cultural sense that this system we were handed is just deeply broken. We're in this ironic time when we're seeing both the best and the worst that the world has to offer. The worst is easy to see. It's things like growing economic disparity, skyrocketing rates of depression. The best is also fairly evident. We have these new methods, these new models for personal growth and self-improvement that never existed before. And yet we don't seem to know how to take advantage of those new methods and models, at least not many of us. And so today I wanna to outline some basic steps for how to live interdependently. I have three steps, they're not necessarily in order, so those steps are to redefine your vocabulary, recreate your systems, and redevelop your models or your prototypes. So first, redefine your vocabulary. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I spent the better part of a summer in Africa. So when my parents retired, they moved to Africa to do missionary work. And my nephew and I traveled over to see them. Now, this was an interesting time for my mom because she was a very independent and proud woman. <laughs> but there was an expectation during this time, it was still the early 80s, and still the time of apartheid, and there was this expectation that white missionaries had enough resources that they would hire somebody to help them around the house. So even though my mom hated the idea, she hired this woman named Lizzie, who would come over and help her clean and just kind of, you know, help around the house. And so my nephew and I were there one day, and Lizzie had come to clean the house, and she brought her daughter along, who was quite young. I, as I recall, she was probably two or three years old. And we decided we would play a game with Lizzie's daughter to, just to keep her amused while her mom worked. So we had this soccer ball, this football, and we thought it would be fun to play keep away. 
So I asked Lizzie, the mom, I said, what's the Setswana word for mine? And Lizzie gave me the word. I don't remember it years later, but she told me that word. And so, you know, I would, I would roll the ball to the little girl and she would roll it back. And then I would grab the ball and I would say the word mine, but I would use the Setswana word for mine. And this little girl, she thought it was the most hilarious thing she'd ever heard. I mean, she would tilt her head back and she was laughing far more than, frankly, what this basic game called for. So then I would roll the ball to my nephew and he would say the same word and she would laugh again. And of, of course, I don't know, I have no idea how long we kept this up for, at least five or 10 minutes, because we just wanted to see her reaction. It was so funny. Well, after a few minutes, we'd been playing this game and Lizzie walked by and she heard the game we were playing and now she started bursting out laughing. And then she told us that she hadn't really understand, understood the question we were asking. So I asked Lizzie, what's the Setswana word for mine? And she told us the word for mine, except she told us the word for a hole in the ground. You know, where Lizzie's husband and the little girl's dad went to work every day mining diamonds. So here's these crazy Americans <laughs> rolling this ball and grabbing it and saying, hole in the ground where my dad works. Now, I give you that story because it's important to understand that it's often true we use words and we have particular meanings that we've assigned to those words because we think we know what that word means. And we think what we know what it means to others as well. But oftentimes we're using the same words and they just don't mean the same thing to the people hearing them. So to begin living interdependently, we need to redefine what it means when we use the word success. If I were to ask the typical audience to give me the name of a person they thought was a success, you know, I would hear the names that we all tend to know. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. In some audiences, I would hear the names of famous actors, musicians, celebrities. Maybe in my more spiritual or self-help oriented audiences, I would hear names like Oprah Winfrey or Deepak Chopra or Tony Robbins. Now, why do we think of these people as successful? Well, we think of them as successful because we know their names. <laughs> we see the we see all the trappings of fame and financial glory when we see them covered across the culture scape. But we also define them as successful because we see them as single entities who created their own path. And I think it's high time that we called bullshit on that narrative. So Elon Musk, let's take him as an example. He's been in the news lately because of his views on government inefficiency. Now, Here's what you have to keep in mind, that Musk is an individual who made his first billions on the back of the public internet, which is one of the United States' most successful government programs in our nation's history. So we have this belief that success is something an individual achieves on their own, like the hero at the apex of their, of their journey. But in the reality, no one has ever succeeded that way. To redefine success, we need to find a way to recraft our belief in achievement as something tied to the achievement of our tribe, of our people. 
We think about that old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And we often think of that as a method for achieving our individual success. But to live interdependently, that needs to be the way we define success itself. Another term we need to redefine, although frankly, I would be absolutely delighted if we could just pitch this term out of the English language, but it's the term self-help. Now, if you haven't seen it, just YouTube, uh, George Carlin has this great piece. The late comedian George Carlin had this great piece in one of his comedy routines where he asked, you know, if you're looking for self-help, why are you reading a book by somebody else? (laughs) The whole premise of self-help is the belief that someone has achieved success in life and they want to share that success formula with you. So maybe it's a book about diet and exercise. And we look to the person who was overweight and aging, and they now seem to be in peak health. And we ask, how did you do that? And their book or their course or their video series, it tells, it tells us all the formula they use to achieve that goal. But what those books or those videos or courses rarely tell us about are all the other people and resources that played a part in helping that person succeed. And here's why that matters. Because if I'm depressed, or I'm a person with low self-esteem, or I just can't figure out how to get myself motivated in a particular area, and I buy that book, what do I do with the self-help content if I can't actualize it in my own life? See, the reason we should consider all the other people that played a part in that self-help guru's success is that the self-success story alone creates a false impression. For those who cannot get themselves motivated or they lack the network of information or they lack other critical resources, then having the formula of personal success tells us a false story. It's part of It's part of the answer, but it's a deceiving part of the answer when given without all the other data that supported that win for that person. But here's the problem. It's a marketing problem, right? Not that many people want to buy a book about a team of people who succeeded because it just doesn't fit our great cultural narrative. And so millions of people consume this self-help content and then they're left frustrated by their inability to make it work for themselves. They're frustrated, at least in part, because they don't see all the other parts of the equation that didn't fit neatly into the prepackaged content that was offered them. So like I said, I'm not a fan of the word self-help, and I would gladly chuck it from the English language if I could. But in the short term, perhaps we can become better consumers of self-help content. We can pick up those books and those ideas that we believe will help us, but we should also realize that help is only valuable when it's achieved through interdependence. Another word we need to redefine if we're going to live interdependently is the root word of that idea, and I'm talking about the word dependence. This has become such a nasty, almost four-letter word in our culture. We all want to live as if we are fully independent and need no one. Here's the 
most basic problem with that idea. It's just not true. <laughs> claiming we depend on no one would be about as rational as claiming we're Martians or we're free from the law of gravity. We are, by design, dependent people. So to have a healthy definition of and a working relationship with dependence, we need to think about what that means. The first part of coming back into healthy relationship with the word dependence is to rid ourselves of all the junk ideas that we hold about independence. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about unhealthy dependence or codependence. But to truly move forward in our life, especially if we find that we have been stymied by not being able to grasp or utilize the knowledge being offered by this self-help industrial complex, then we must come back into a healthy relationship with others. We have to realize that dependence, both dependence on others and showing up in a way that allows others to depend on us, is at the core of living interdependently. So we need to redefine our vocabulary. Next, we need to recreate our systems. Now, I'm going to use a word here that may seem very offensive to some people. I'm not talking about our usual four-letter swear words or curses. I'm not talking about a word that is often more offensive than sexual context, content or political conversations. I'm talking about the word religion. Now, I hope I didn't lose you with that word, and I want to make it abundantly clear that this is not a podcast about religion. But I am, by training, a sociologist of religion, and when we think about recreating our systems, I believe there's a helpful lesson we might learn from the role religion can play in the best possible world. The root of the word religion has the same etymology from which we get the word ligament. In other words, religion should be, and I, I realize that it rarely is. But it should be those things that bind us together. And here's why I bring up this subject in relation to figuring out how to live interdependently. Because the last several decades has seen a dramatic growth in two trends. In one of those trends, as a culture, we consume more and more self-help content. At the same time, the fastest growing religious classification is spiritual, but not religious. Now, a couple episodes ago, I talked about the Philip Reef book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Now, in that book, Reef suggested that we would eventually become, we would all become our own authorities. And from that perspective, the growth of the spiritual but not religious identity and the growth of the self-help movement are well paired. You know, the self-help movement has a fundamental premise underneath it that we each have completely within ourselves everything we need to succeed. The spiritual but not religious movement shares the same characteristic, namely that we can be, quote, spiritual, but not be bound to anything bigger than ourselves. Now, I need to share with you part of my journey, which is that I am less and less religiously observant these days. So please do not hear anything that I'm saying as the promotion of a particular set of doctrines or you know, the prelude to an altar call or any attempt in any way to convince you of a particular set of religious dogmatic ideas. 
but what I want you to see is that the idea of being spiritual but not religious, and I'm going to offer a bold statement here, but the idea of being spiritual but not religious is really just pious masturbation. I realize that last statement will kind of go over like a fart in church, but I wanted to be shocking because I wanted you to hear this point. We need to rethink our systems, and systems, by definition, cannot be a choose-your-own-adventure. In fact, I would argue that many of the great problems we face today exist because we can no longer think as a people. So let's take the existential threat of climate change. To care about this problem, you need to see yourself as part of a global community. You need to see yourself as connected to those people that are affected by this problem, even if you are not directly yet. Or let's take another problem, deaths of despair. This is the fastest growing rate of death in the United States, which are deaths from suicide, drug overdose, and alcoholism. But if you live above a certain level of social capital, you can be shielded from the worst effects of those deaths. Now, turning our conversation back to how we live interdependently, I now want you to think broadly about the idea of what binds us together. And as a scholar of religion, I would say that there are three B's that bind us together. These are belief, behavior, and belonging. The sociologist Fred Niss wrote a book called Sacred Assemblies, Civic Engagement. And Niss did his research when he was at the University of Loyola, Chicago. And so he studied a dozen local congregations around the Chicago area of different belief systems. And one of his key findings was that we tend to act in the world based on our belief in the transcendent. And in particular, what the transcendent or what some God view cares about. Now, that was a really long and complicated way to say that we tend to act in the world based on what we think God wants. Now, I'm not pushing a God agenda, but I would argue that even atheists have a transcendent view on what matters in the world. And it's that core belief in how we think the world should be ordered that shapes the way we behave. So in Nissa's research, he described why certain religions and religious sects that held a view of a higher power that cared deeply about the individual, well, they tended to favor social policies that focused on the individual. So Southern Baptists, as one specific example, they tend to vote for the Republican Party and its heavy emphasis on individual responsibility. Catholic traditions, which... By definition, they are Catholic, so they have a more global view of the world. They tend to favor policies that are more social in orientation. Now, that's not as true as as it used to be, in part because of the Americanization of religion in the United States. But how do you think the world should be ordered and why? And actually, that second question, it's not as important that you get it right as it is that you understand your motivation. What I find in my research on interdependence is that a lot of people languish, unable to find the assistance from others that they need to move beyond depression, low self-esteem, poor levels of social capital. 
but they also have not shifted fundamentally their view of what matters in the world. So to live interdependently, you, you need to move to a place where you believe that reciprocal dependence on others is actually how the world should be. It's how the world should be ordered. Because our beliefs shape our behavior. And I'm going to admit that this is one area, the area of behavior, where the self-help movement has an edge. It's a deeply held belief in our modern culturescape that we succeed alone. And it's deeply held belief that the world is comprised of thriving individuals. And while that's partly true, what that belief system leaves out is the fundamental nature of our reliance on each other. So if your beliefs only allow you to see the self-actualized individual as the highest self, well, then you can never move to a set of behaviors that require you to begin living interdependently. So what kinds of behaviors might we begin to exhibit if we shifted our belief system to the idea that we're all in this together? Well, for one thing, service to others would be obvious. We wouldn't think of giving to others as something that kind of comes off the top. We would recognize service as a core need in this operating system of humanity. We might also begin to act and behave in ways that allows us to be vulnerable and authentic with each other. If we saw ourselves as part of an interconnected ecosystem, then we would realize that our, our foibles and our flaws, that they can be compensated for in a healthy system. And perhaps we wouldn't be so afraid to share the deepest parts of our heart. We might also begin to move beyond the behaviors that we associate with the belief in scarcity. Now, I mentioned that many of our great problems in this world, they come from a lack of understanding our connection. But it's also true that many of our problems are driven by scarcity. And if we could truly practice the belief that there was enough for everyone's needs, then those who find themselves unable to get out of their rut well, they might have a little more courage if they believed they would, there would be enough for them as well. Now, I can already hear the voice of the doubters. They're going to suggest that I'm making room for the goof-offs and for all the people not willing to work hard enough. Do not hear that. Because there's a whole class of people who want desperately to improve their lives, but they don't fundamentally believe they can. So they they can't begin to practice the behaviors that would allow them to grow and thrive. This shift in our belief and our behaviors is the way to move that group of people forward. So if we can shift our systems of beliefs and behavior, then we can create glorious and rich new ways of belonging. We're already seeing signs of this new kind of belonging. There's a global community of people awakening to the emptiness of the self-help and the me-first narrative. But I often fear that it's difficult to find belonging in those groups because we're still driven by this need to have a completely original and self-professed system of beliefs and behaviors. But nothing 
nothing, nothing in nature works that way. Again, I'm not advocating for one particular set of doctrines or dogmas. I'm not pushing an agenda of some one type of belonging, but finding a way to live in reliance with each other and the belief that undergirds that way of living in the world, that can lead to amazing new ways of belonging as well. So to redefine our vocabulary and to recreate our systems, we need new models. We simply don't know how to behave and believe in new ways. And so we need new design prototypes to test our new ways of living in the world. So let's start with the problem um, that we simply don't know how to thrive together. So to prototype a solution to this lack of knowledge, a group of us have started asking this simple question. What would it look like if we met once a week? We talk about our desires for ourselves, for our family, for the world, and we offer to make whatever resources we have available to each other. Now, this is a group that I meet with once a week on Zoom with people from all over the world, and we're still figuring it out, but that group is slowly beginning being integrated into my operating system. Another problem that often gets in the way of interdependence is that we don't want to feel reliant on another person. We talked earlier about this, but we are concerned about codependence. You know, who will I be after all if my identity is tied up with others? But boldly proclaiming, I am an island, it doesn't make it so. You know, the real issue may be that we don't know how to practice vulnerability, authenticity, and honesty about our own needs. So what if we were to ask this design question? How can we model healthy interdependence? What would it look like if we chose healthy entanglement with others? And further, how could we create a place for people to practice that kind of vulnerability? Now, for those of us that spend time in the rooms of recovery, this is what we see modeled and prototyped every day. Now, we model that behavior because for us, it's also true that our survival in many ways depends on it. We know we couldn't thrive without the support of the group. We're not looking for approval. We're looking for pathways and guides for our journey. But there's something so much bigger happening there I talked about the importance of beliefs and the rooms of recovery give us a chance to practice those new beliefs. Beliefs in authenticity, self-honesty, vulnerability. And if those attitudes and beliefs are necessary skills for thriving together, then we need to find a place to practice them. Look, it, you know, if you want to become a better writer, then practice by writing. You want to become a better accountant? Add, or I have no idea. Whatever it, whatever it is that accountants do, do more of that. You want to be somebody that practices interdependence and vulnerability? Find a place where you can practice those attitudes and beliefs. A third belief, badly in need of a redesign, is the belief, maybe even our greatest fear, that there will not be enough that our needs and our wants will go unmet because of scarcity. Now, a group of us have been prototyping a solution to this problem of scarcity for almost 17 years. 
We started with the basic design question, how can we help eliminate economic isolation? And so to tackle that question, what we began to do was we pool resources with people we know so we can provide help for people we care about. And let me give you an example of what that looks like. When I was still teaching in the college classroom, I had a student who was the first in his family to go beyond high school. And this was true for a lot of my students coming from Appalachia. In this campus job that paid for part of his schooling, he was working maintenance and he fell and he broke his two front teeth. And this student was then faced with the awful choice of either getting his teeth fixed or continuing his education because he couldn't do both. And he felt so alone. So our group met to discuss the need. We were able to pay to get his teeth fixed at a local dentist. Now this was a very simple way to fulfill a need, but it had profound impact on that one person's life. And over the last 17 years, through this organization, Common Change, we've given away hundreds of thousands of dollars in exactly that way. We've seen lives changed, all by asking this simple question, how can we help our neighbor feel less alone economically? So to start living interdependently, we need new words, we need new systems, and we need new prototypes. Now, as always, I want to leave you with some prompts, some things that you can work on this week to begin to live interdependently. So first, I want you to spend some time journaling about your core beliefs. What exactly do you believe about your ability to create life completely on your own? And is that belief helping you? Is it limiting you? Spend some time journaling about your core belief about the need for others. And then second, ask yourself how those beliefs fit into the vision of the life you want to create. I would invite you to even begin to re-envision life by doing it with a community of people. What would that look like? How would it be different? What decisions might you make that were counter to this dominant self-help culture narrative? And then third, ask yourself and journal about where you belong. See, part of my desire is to create new ways of belonging to communities of people who live interdependently. So often we find ourselves with these just horrible choices. Our religious institutions and our churches have become often not much better than spectator sporting events. And our social groups have lost their importance in their community. So as you're journaling this week, ask yourself this question, where do I belong? And if the place where you belong isn't the kind of place where you can practice interdependency, ask yourself and journal about the question, how can I create new places of belonging? And speaking of places to belong, I'm still working on ways to carry this conversation outside of the podcast. But for right now, you can still follow me on social. You can find me at Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at the Will Sampson. And that's a wrap for today, folks. Please hit the subscribe button below to be notified of the latest episode. So thanks, everyone, and I will see you the next time on the Revolution of Interdependence podcast.